welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ray Brescia, Honorable Harold R. Tyler, Chair in Law and Technology and Professor of Law at Albany Law School. We will discuss his book, The Future of Change, How Technology Shapes Social Revolutions, which is published by Cornell University Press. So welcome to the show, Ray. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about this book because I found it fascinating, um, both in terms of the kind of big picture structural observations you make about how social change works, and also the wonderful stories that you tell in the book that really brought a lot of those more theoretical observations to life. Um, but before we get into the kind of the big ideas part, I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about yourself, your background, and how your background informed the work that you're doing in in your scholarship and in, in this book in particular. Uh, sure. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, and thank you for asking it because it gets me to talk a little bit about myself. Uh, but uh, I, I am a law professor, as you said, but I, I just started practicing law back in the early 90s. Uh, and that's really where this book sort of starts uh, as a uh, when I was a tenant organizer working mostly in Harlem and Washington Heights in New York City, representing low income, primarily people of color uh, who are tenants uh, and uh, fighting for better housing conditions and uh, less rent gouging and things like that. And, and really that experience, those experiences uh, informed the book, and I try and bring some of those experiences into it. Um, and but then, you know, what I tried to do as an academic was uh, look at the relationship between technology and social movements, particularly communications technology, and really blend those those uh, all those ideas together. My experiences as a primarily as a tenant organizer, but also representing low wage workers and groups involved in environmental justice issues, uh, combining those with the, the the scholarly analysis of social movements. So the book has uh, a bit of both, um, and uh, it was it was really. Exciting to to see some of those ideas uh, collide uh, in in ways that I that I thought were pretty interesting, which is what got me uh, into and motivated uh, to write the book. Well, so I wonder if you could take a step back then and kind of talk a, a little bit about the theoretical framework, kind of structuring a lot of the observations you make about how social movements work in the book. In other words, you know what what kind of theories do you think we sh listeners should be aware of about how and why social change happens as a result of social movements and why some movements are more successful than others? Well, so what I, what I tried to do was answer the question, what is the relationship between communications technologies and social movements, particularly advances in communications technology? And, and the question for me was raised by groups like the Occupy movement or the Arab Spring and people saying, oh, you know, Twitter launched the Arab Spring or Facebook, you know, created the, uh, the Occupy movement. And I, you know, the didn't ring so true for me as a as a former lawyer and tenant organizer, and so I started looking at you know prior moments when social movements seem to emerge around the time that technology, communications technology advanced um, and tried to look at the relationships between those uh, advances in communications technology and social movements. And uh, what I found was that, you know, some of our great social movements in American history really emerged at the time that new communications technologies appeared on the scene. And so what I then tried to do, and we can go through those instances, what I call social innovation moments in the book, we could go through some of those. And, um, and that's what I did in the book and tried to tease out, well, what were the success successful components 
of those social movements that emerged in those social innovation moments. And that, and that's really the framework of the book to say, okay, what were those successful components and what can they tell us about the moment we're in today and how those successes can inform efforts to bring about social change today? Well, so one of the things I thought was really interesting about the book was a sort of broad definition of communications technology you adopt. And I want to return to that in just a moment. But before that, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the concept of social capital that you use in the book and why you think social capital is an important sort of component of thinking about how social movements uh, catalyze social change. Uh, well, you know, social capital is is an idea that's been kicking around uh, since the early part of the 20th century, but it was really popularized by Robert Putnam in his uh, landmark book Bowling Alone. Um, and uh, you know, I, I as a as a former tenant organizer, I really. Um, embrace this idea of social capital, which I sort of boiled down to the like networked trust, right? Like one person doesn't have social capital. Only, you, know, you can only have social capital between people and whether it's, you know, between a, a person and his or her neighbor or uh, in, a, in a, a union or in a tenant association or in a, a mass movement, uh, you know, that sort of network trust and the, the things that you can do because of that network trust. And some of, uh, you know, Putnam's work really shows that, you know, in communities where there's higher levels of social capital, there's, you know, less crime and more cooperation and people are able to solve collective action problems more effectively. Uh, his, his research actually before Bowling Alone, his research in Italy um, sort of showed that in communities where there was a sort of legacy, you know, centuries of, uh, of, of, you know, groups and civil society, those communities in Italy, they, you know, democracy just functioned better. You know, people, uh, you know, worked more collaboratively with each other. They participated in elections. They participated in, uh, you know, uh, neighborhood watch groups and things like that. And that, that social capital, I, I have found and certainly has been my experience uh, at, at working in, in uh, low-income communities and communities of color that that you know, social capital is a, a key sort of lubricant, if you would, for social change. Um, and I s- sort of look at some theories about social change and bring – try to tie social capital – to social movement theory, which which is done a little bit less in scholarship, and so I, I tried to I tried to bring those those two concepts together, and then how that relates to communications technology is that social capital is formed, you know, more strongly in certain types of organizations and certain types of communications technology facilitate those, you know, different types of organizations, organizations that either, uh, you know, create social capital or sort of undermine it, if you would. And and my analysis is that, you know, if we use technology to foster social capital, trust and cooperation through uh, face-to-face communications, those types of organizations are more uh, able to bring about su- successful social change. So, so I think social capital is a, a key ingredient in social movements and technology, like many things, can undermine social capital or can promote it. Well, so I think it might be helpful for listeners to get a better sense of what you mean by communications technology in order to understand how it might affect 
the development of social capital. So among other things, you, you talk about the role of communications technology in the 18th century, right? We don't think of that as usually being a, a technological era. Um, what kind of communication technology are you talking about in those kind of late 18th, early 19th century uh social movements, and how did technology or communications technology affect the development of social movements and how they functioned at that point in time? Sure. I, I mean, I think the, you know, the, the sort of common definition of technology would encompass most of what I talk about, whether it's the printing press, the telegram, uh, you know, the transcontinental railroad, the, the telephone. Uh, I think the only thing in that sort of span from, you know, the American Revolution through the progressive era, the only thing that, you know, people might say, well, is that a technology is the, the postal system? which is sort of tucked in there, uh, really, uh, it starts, the American postal system is, you know, predates the Declaration of Independence, uh, because the, uh, you know, Revolutionaries Continental Congress in 1775, before they even vote for independence, create what they call a constitutional post, uh, which is independent from the crown postal system, because the, you know, the rebels didn't want their mails open. They didn't want the the post, uh, you know, the the postage that they were paying to support the crown, and so they created this continental post from Georgia to what is now Maine. They put Benjamin Franklin in, uh, in charge of it, first postmaster general, um, and and the the postal system together with the printing press are really integral to the success of the American Revolution, and and we can sort of move as as we go forward over the next hundred years plus, we see uh, with each introduction of this new means of communication, um, we see, uh, you know, advances in social movements. So the early part of the 19th century, the postal system is is truly, in in, in the United States, is like the best in the world. It's better than it's 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 um, bigger. It has more uh, post offices than England's than France's, um, uh, and and we see some of the you know the great social organizations of the 19th century are really form literally around the postal system. A new post office is uh, voted in by Congress. And then, you know, a new chapter of the American Temperance Society is formed in a new community. Um, uh, Then, you know, sort of fast forward to the 1830s and the introduction of the new, this, this steam powered printing press which the abolitionist movement really embraces and they use it to, you know, you can print more, you can print more cheaply, uh, and the abolitionists use this steam printing press to great effect and they distribute their abolitionist tracts uh, throughout the country, even in the South. You know, it leads Andrew Jackson to say, oh, you know, we've got to, we, we've got to censor these abolitionists uh, and politicians want to uh, limit the ability of the abolitionists to distribute their uh, the information throughout the South for fear that it's going to spark, you know, uh, a, uh, a slave revolt. Um, uh, and then, you know, just a decade or so later, the telegram is introduced. And soon after the telegram is introduced, we get the formation of the Associated Press. And then a little bit after that, the Seneca Falls Convention, you know, the first, the, 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 the convention that most people sort of say launched the women's movement. Uh, it wasn't the first women's convention, but it was the first one that seemed to gain traction, partly because news of it could be distributed and was distributed in real time using the telegram. And and that launches uh, other conventions, other meetings, rallies, um, you know, all, you know, in, in some ways because of the, the, 
the telegram at the time. So, so, you know, I go through these examples in the book. Um, and I, I, I think that it's these instances where we see this relationship between advances in communications or the means of communication. If you're uncomfortable with uh, the term technology, you know, the, 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 you know, changes in the way in which we communicate change uh, change society because social movements slip in there and embrace that new means and use it to great effect. So that that's those are some of the you know the examples I use in the book, and that's the the, the broader theory of the book. Mm. Well, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how social capital works in making social movements effective or ineffective, and specifically the role of what I would characterize as like decentralization, which you kind of emphasize as being an important or at least potentially important element in sort of predicting, as it were, whether or not a particular social movement is going to be effective. I mean, why is that? How is the kind of centralization or lack thereof relevant to social capital and sort of you know, how, how do we see that differentiation affecting whether or not social capital develops and particular social movements achieve their aims? Sure. So is, if you look at these these movements, and I trace a number of them from the revolution straight through you know, to the civil rights movement and beyond, and up until the civil rights movement, the, the groups you know, formed – really almost like the postal system. They had local chapters. They were connected to regional, state, national uh, organizations, but they had these local chapters. You know, the NAACP at the height of the civil rights movement had over a thousand chapters. I talk about the passage of the GI Bill in the 40s, and that was advanced by the American Legion. 12,000 chapters throughout the United States, these local chapters where people could meet face to face, they could coordinate their action, they could build trust. And, and that, that's where that social capital is formed in these local chapters that are connected to a larger national organization. So it's, it's these what I call translocal organizations that have a face to face local component that's connected to a larger movement, a larger organization. Um, and so in, in, for the first, you know, 200 years of our existence, uh, in the United States existence, most organizations were formed in this way in this translocal way where people could meet in person but still leverage the power of a larger organization by being connected to it. Um, and uh, that really stops at the end of the civil rights movement. And, and, it, and it, it changes partly in a way because of changes in technology. So we see you know, sort of the high watermark of the civil rights movement, you know, sort of 65 to 68, you get, you know, the this, this Civil Rights Act 64, Voting Rights Act 65, Fair Housing Act 68. So, so this period, you know, the, the, the civil rights movement, you know, gets most of its, you know, landmark legislation passed. And other groups arise in the wake of the civil rights movement say, you know, hey, we want some of that. We want to do what the civil rights movement did. But it, critically, they didn't mimic the structure of a group like the NAACP or some of the other groups that were, you know, so integral to the civil rights movement. They, they changed the, some of those groups, you know, uh, form into sort of top town top-down organizations that are not chapter-based, that are much more, um, you know, there's sort of a, 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 a hub-and-spoke model, you know, a wheel with, with a cent you know, strong central organization 
and it you know reached out to individual members who weren't for the most part in chapters and and why is that well it's because a new technology emerged at the time sort of late late 60s early 70s that enabled organizations to form with you know little more than paper members and that's the computerized mailing list um and we see some of this it's, it's it was so great uh, i don't know if if you're uh, listeners, uh, or if you watched uh, Mrs. America, which was this uh, show on um, on Hulu, I think that uh, you know went through the um, opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment, and and sort of this, it was almost like a character in the book is Phyllis Schlafly's mailing list, right? And at the end of the of the show, she sort of downloads the 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 list and gives it to Republican operatives, and that was so. Exciting. Exciting for me. It's like, yes, that's what I was talking about in the book, you know, um, is that the, you know, groups formed using this new uh, computerized mailing list model. And I think we lost something there. And what we lost was the ability to form into local chapters and build social capital, which is an engine and a lubricant, as I said before, for trust and, and groups to mobilize and connect and collaborate and cooperate, all of which, all of that is essential to social movement success. And I think in the, the sort of period from the 70s through to the advent of the internet and social media, you know, we lost something in, in that the dominance of that model. That was that got away from translocal organizing, and and what I'm excited to say, in which I I try to show in the book, is that we we're starting to get a, get get back to some of that sort of traditional model of organizing, but we're doing it with new tools, and that's why I think we are in a new social innovation moment today, and social media is sort of supercharging that, you know, supercharging this moment. And, you know, there, I, I try to document a number of instances where groups sort of blended the old with the new and have used, you know, social media and other technologies, you know, contemporary technologies to advance social change through this sort of a return to translocal organizing, which which is very exciting to me. And that's, and that's one of the elements elements of the successful social movements that I trace in the book up through the civil rights movement. You know, it's not just technology that has advanced social change. Rather, technology was a means to an end. It wasn't an end to itself. And, you know, groups use that technology to create translocal networks. Um, and uh, and they use those translocal networks to build trust and advance social change. And and it's exciting to me that people are getting back to, uh, in some ways, um, though that translocal model of organizing and using social media and other contemporary technologies to do so. As a way of illustrating the sort of differing functionality and effectiveness of centralized versus more kind of federalized, as it were, organizations. If I recall, you talk in the book a little bit about uh, teachers unions in West Virginia. And I wonder if you could talk about that example and how you think it illustrates the relative effectiveness of these two different methods of organizing for social change. Sure. That's uh, an example I go into book in the book is the uh, sort of uh, West Virginia teacher uprising, if you would call it that, from a couple of years ago, where uh, you know rank and file members of two different unions, uh, teachers unions in the state, um, started to organize on their own, and 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 this story is a story that I've heard, and, and partly because my 
my my ears are up listening for it. But a story I've heard, whether it's you know the group Moms Demand Action, it's some of the um, the student um, students against uh, you know students for gun reform uh, that that's really sort of emerged after Parkland. Uh, it's this it's the same story, and and West Virginia uh, teachers uh, really exemplify it, which is you know a a couple of people get together they talk about well let's let's create a facebook group and maybe we'll get a few hundred members maybe we'll get a thousand members uh and we'll start sharing information we'll start you know keeping our eyes open and our ears open for news about what's happening to us and and we'll put that that information out on the facebook group and before they know it you know they've got thousands and thousands of members and 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 this story has been replicated as I, I gave you some examples you know over the last you know 5 years or so it's a story that's been replicated again and again is that people using social media to share information coordinate action so so the west virginia teachers you know, use Facebook as a platform to share information. They're monitoring what's going on with their health benefits. They're seeing, you know, they're getting raises on paper, but the, those raises are being eaten up by changes in their health benefits. Um, and so they start to organize and, and they have unions, but they're starting to organize. They're starting to organize on their own. They're sharing information. They're coordinating events. They're coordinating rallies. Um, and uh, it's sort of a, a, a peak moment occurs when the the teachers union leadership are inside the state house they're negotiating with the, the state officials and they cut a deal so the union leaders cut a deal uh, inside the state house and there are hundreds of protesters outside and you know because of you know social media and modern technologies the 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 protesters outside learn of the 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 contours of the deal before the union leaders even can get out and and present it to the members and the members don't like it and so they've got, uh, you know, local chapters, you know, the local, uh, you know, uh, uh, components of the unions have to vote on the, the, the package that the leadership had negotiated. And, and those local groups are, you know, they're on the Facebook group and they're mobilizing against it. They vote it down. They've, you know, force the the union leaders to go back, and they're able to cut a better deal because of this sort of uh, you know this rump group, if you would, that was you know over twenty thousand members strong that you know forced the leadership to to go back and and get a better deal, which they were able to secure. So uh, you know, I don't mean to criticize the union. But to say, you know, these individuals who, you know, were able to mobilize on their own, I mean, they were just rank and file members, they weren't leaders themselves, but they were able to, to coordinate and communicate with other people who were, you know, equally concerned about what was going on and able to mobilize in such a way that, you know, was able to get them a better deal. And, and that was, you know, completely because of social media. Now, th did they did they developed face-to-face -face relationships, they attended rallies together, they developed that trust. They, you know, there's a lot of sort of back and forth, you know, people you know, see someone post something on Facebook and then they connect at an in-person rally or they're at an in-person rally, they meet somebody, then they communicate over social media. So there's, it's really hard to tease out chicken and egg here, but there's really this symbiotic relationship among these uh, activists um, between their street level organizing and the ways that social media really amplified that. So it's, it's it's and as I said, you know the story of uh, you know moms demand action, the 
the, the, the parkland uh, activists and those groups that have sprung up in, in, in cities and in localities throughout the country in the wake of the parkland shooting, you know, a lot of it follows this same storyline is that, you know, there's, you know, some activity that sparks uh, activism. It's they then harness social media to amplify their voices, to connect with people who they might not otherwise connect with. And then that feeds into the 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 street level organizing, the face to face organizing and the and the outcomes. So so that's the tie. Those those are all tied in. Well, so you've just talked about how different kinds of communication technology can facilitate the development of forms of social capital that enable organizations to work more effectively toward their goal of social change. But in a couple other examples, you show how it can also facilitate uh, the development of social capital in relation to people who aren't members of the organization, but are in a position to be convinced. And in, sp- in particular, I'm thinking of your discussion of both the uh, marriage equality movement and the agitation for uh, living wage in, in Long Beach. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that sort of like on the ground social capital within the movement also can make the movement more effective in getting its message out. Sure. So I think the Long Beach, California example is a great one where, uh, you know, groups leverage, individuals and groups leverage their existing social capital to sort of create a broader network that that was um, strengthened by pre-existing ties that uh, advocates and activists had. So, so Long Beach, California, is, you know, lot, the hotel industry is is very strong in the community. It's 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 you know facing some challenges now, of course, uh, but at the time, you know, hospitality was a, a a big driver of the economy, and so the Unite Here, Unite Here, the the union there tried to add advocate for uh, raising the minimum wage of hotel workers and what they you know the the sort of um, marketing if you would of their campaign to raise the minimum wage was you know many of their members if not most of their members lived locally and spent their you know their wages locally and the idea was if you you know gave them a higher wage that would support local businesses and so who are some you know organizations that what are some organizations that you know want to see local businesses thrive well you know small business owners obviously they want to see local businesses thrive uh wealthier communities you know the uh, residential communities homeowners associations they also want to see you know their you know local businesses thrive it brings up their property values so the uh the union formed alliances with these you know uh allies that you don't normally see collaborating and cooperating with a a union of uh, hospitality workers, that is small businesses and homeowners associations, let alone supporting raising the minimum wage for hotel workers. You know, small businesses are often, you know, held out as opponents to raising the minimum wage. Um, But here they worked with the the union uh, and uh, the uh, the union, you know, found allies within these other groups to go spread the message. You know, so if a, you know a union member went to speak to uh, a homeowners association, maybe the reception wouldn't be so strong. Um, so what they they did, they they found members of those homeowners associations who supported the campaign to go talk to their neighbors, you know, sort of building on that social capital that those homeowners association held within the association, uh, building on that trust, building on those relationships to get those homeowners associations to support the campaign. Um, uh, same thing with the small businesses. They got, you know, they went to small businesses, they got small business owners to talk 
to each other. They promoted on social media, you know, images of workers shopping locally, spending locally um, to get this sort of broad-based coalition that, you know, had not typically worked together in the past. Uh, and and the, the effort was so strong, it was to promote a local ballot initiative. The effort passed you know, overwhelmingly. Uh, and the only regret that the union leaders had was that they hadn't asked for more, uh, that they, they, that was so successful that they felt that they could have asked for a higher wage. Um, and we see, you know, these, uh, efforts, similar efforts that the, you know, the union took that campaign to LA, uh, and we see, you know, throughout the country calls for higher minimum wage, uh, you know, really, you know, striking, trying to strike some of the themes that the the, the union did in in uh, uh, Long Beach, California, and so that's that's one example. Uh, and the marriage equality example, you know, we can talk about. Well, you know, there's Obergefell, you know, Windsor, these big, you know, landmark constitutional cases. But in the chapter on um, marriage equality, uh, I sort of go back, you know, decades to the efforts to that slowly builds uh you know relationship by relationship uh neighborhood by neighborhood state by state uh, that built the campaign that was ultimately successful in these um in these landmark um supreme court decisions but it it was it was not you know a couple of lawyers got together and filed a lawsuit and you know convinced a majority of the Supreme Court to uh, to rule in their favor. And thus, you know, the world was made better. It was painstaking work over decades to get it to the point where, uh, you know, the Supreme Court would, uh, you know, rule in favor of marriage equality. But it was, you know, I go into a couple of examples in the book with the, mo- the one I really focus on is the a, a ballot referendum in Maine in 2012 and the efforts of the advocates literally going door to door, having hundreds of thousands of conversations in Maine um, to convince voters to support the ballot referendum, uh, which which they did. Uh, and, and in, in uh, just a few years, in 2009, a ballot referendum was defeated. In 2012, it was secured uh, and, and Maine so supported marriage equality. And so I try to try and go through the, the, the mechanics of that effort and how they harness technology to build social capital and um, convince people to support that ballot referendum. And, and it was efforts like that in states across the country that ultimately created this tipping point um, where the Supreme Court, if you would, felt comfortable ruling for marriage equality. Yeah. So this is one of the things I thought was really interesting about the book, the way you talk about how movements for social change use social capital to change minds of people who aren't necessarily part of the movement, but who they need to get on board in order to succeed. And I thought that those were great examples of that. But of course, the sort of elephant in the room, as it were, is the communication technology that defines kind of the modern moment, which is social media. And you sort of differentiate between social capital and what you refer to as synthetic social capital in relation to social media, which kind of struck me in relation to a meme that I've seen out there in social media myself. Like, you know, does social media change your mind about social questions and values, or does it just reinforce the values you already have? So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by synthetic social capital and how you see the role of social media in social change, maybe just positive and negative. Sure. So what I would try and talk about with this concept of synthetic social capital is that you know, social media and other sort of similar technologies can actually replicate and strengthen uh, regular social capital, if you would, in some ways. Uh, and and there's evidence uh, to show this. You know that uh, you can 
Um, you, you can leverage social media, for example, to create, you know, to, to enhance and facilitate face-to-face communications um, that, that lead to uh, social capital, that lead to sort of regular social capital. Um, and, you know, you think of your own, if you, you know, if you use social media, you know, uh, it, before social media, I had lost contact with uh, many, you know, high school friends, uh, college friends, but, you know, social media helped me to connect, reconnect with people in ways that, you know, short of hiring a you know private investigator would would I would never have connected with, with reconnected with uh, you know these friends um, and so that you know and and then you can with with those ties that you've you've created through social media you can meet up again you can support each other you can give people information you they can try and convince you you can try and convince them so that's this notion of synthetic social capital that we can you know in some ways replicate some of the benefits of social capital but we certainly can rebuild so traditional social capital using uh, social media and other technologies now there are absolutely Absolutely downsides to to social media and other technologies. You know, one of them is sort of you know slacktivism. Oh, if I've liked this uh, or retweeted this Black Lives Matter tweet, does that you know have I am I done? Have I have I done my part for the movement? Um, and of course, you haven't. Um, there's so much more that goes into social change, um, and so you know there's the risk that you can. Um, you know, get into this sort of false sense of security and, and um, you know, self-satisfaction that you have, you know, done your part for the movement when you've done, in fact, you've done very little. Um, so that's sort of one downside. The other downside is, is you've sort of uh, alluded to is this idea that, well, if you only talk to people with whom you agree and, and they're only sharing information that, that you already agree with, are you really learning anything? Are you, uh, are you developing? Are you opening yourself up to other ideas and, and challenging your own ideas? And that, that is absolutely a risk. And, and we've got, you know, there, absolutely you know our filter bubbles are out there um but you know there are ways to to combat that and there's a a a great paper out there the emperor's dilemma which sort of goes into uh you know how we can um you know overcome some of these biases this confirmation bias by you know reaching out to people who may not be in our immediate circle of friends to fact check some stuff you know to run you know run ideas by uh people who aren't in our immediate circle that's one of the best ways for overcoming some of the you know some of this filter bubble but i think that you know i think we've got a great example uh of you know just the last few weeks of how social media can change minds. I think if you track the, you know, public approval of, you know, Black Lives Matter and of, uh, you know, efforts to reform the police, um, you know, we see, you know, there have been, you know, studies, you know, just, you know, released in the last few days that, uh, you know, I think, you know, proclaiming, you know, the most successful social movement in history and how dramatically um, uh, popular opinion has changed. And I think a lot of that is because of the, uh, the the fact that videos are being shared that that show the you know dramatic abuse uh, and murder of African Americans at the hands of police uh, that that have really changed people's minds and and you know I go back to the civil rights movement and the way that they use television to highlight the abuses that uh, activists were were suffering at the hands of police and of uh, and of goons um that that really changed people's minds but we're seeing you know that took you know that took years here we're seeing these changes uh, you know really unfold in weeks now does do, do i think that the um uh, you know the 
there's been a spike in in this type of abuse that's being just being documented now. No, it's just that it's being filmed now, and it's raising people's awareness uh, and and changing people's minds. So I think that there's uh, you know you you we we see in in this example uh, how. Uh, people's minds can be changed by social media. Now, certainly some people are digging in, of course, we see that as well. Um, but uh, I think that the uh, the sort of overwhelming evidence is that uh, people have become far more sympathetic to efforts to reform police conduct and misconduct in in simply, you know, the last month or so. And, and, and I think a lot of that is due to uh, not, not just the the hard work that people are doing, but also to the fact that we now are seeing this uh, in you know in in vivid um, you know high definition uh, videos, uh, and and so you know we can look at you know the radio as another example. You know the radio was integral to uh, FDR's promotion of the New Deal, right? The fireside chats. It was also used by the Nazis. You know, uh, the Nazis made sure that there were low-cost tele- radio receivers uh, I- available to people so that they could hear Nazi speeches, right? You, the the um, Brad Smith from Microsoft calls these new technologies, you know, tools and weapons. They're both. Uh, and you know the 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 hope is that we can use these um, uh, you know these means of communication for positive ends uh, and and will they be used for negative ends of course they will uh, but but I'm hoping that we can you know that the, that the the good outweighs the bad mm. well so so ray in in closing I mean I think you do an excellent job in the book talking about the use of communication technology for progressive social change. And in parts of the book, you talk about, you know, you've just talked as well about, you know, movements like Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, translating the sort of synthetic uh, social capital into real social capital and sort of bridging the gap between the two. But it seems like in some cases that social media can also, and as you've said, can also be used for less salutary ends. I'm thinking of like, you know, QAnon, for example, also seems to move from synthetic social capital to in-person social capital in some cases. I mean, I, I guess my question for you is, how do we encourage progressive social change and the use of communication technology for those purposes while resisting the use of social media for generating social capital for ill. Well, I think that uh, that will that will have to hinge around content moderation that will uh, you know limit the spread of you know incitement to violence that will um you know limit uh f- you know fake news of you know of the worst type you know that that if you had somebody if 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 god willing there is a a uh, vaccine for coronavirus that you know we don't have people sending out inf- bad information about it you know uh, assuming it's you know if it is safe you know if people are sending out information don't take the you know don't get the virus you know don't get the vaccine it's it's a, a way for or, you know, the government to control your mind, you know, like some degree of content moderation, I think is one uh, aspect of that, you know, of a way, and and it doesn't have to be, you know, only, you know, only supporting progressive values or only promoting progressive um, change. You know, I think that it's a platform where all, uh, you know, legitimate voices, if you would, should be able to to share in it and and try and convince other people of the you know the, the correctness of their positions. Um, but but it's the it's the fake news, it's the damaging news, it's the harmful news. Uh, it's the incitement to violence that that is um, th- that's the, the, there is danger there for sure, and the fact that uh, you know there is no um, mediating institution generally that that 
that would, um, you know, we used to have the, you know, three networks, right? And if you got on the three networks, you were, you were able, you know, your, your information got amplified. Uh, and I, I think that that's not a good system either. Um, but some degree of content moderation around, you know, that's, that's around safety uh, and, uh, you know, undermining violence, which I think is, is uh, certainly if, if the government did it, it's consistent with the First Amendment. But of course, you know, Twitter and Facebook and, and other social media sites, they're not protected by, you know, they're, they're protected by the First Amendment. They're not governed by the First Amendment. You know, they can do, they can control whatever speech they want. And uh, we're starting to see that, you know, Twitter has done some things, Reddit has done some things. Um, so I think that that's an avenue. And and I, I'm not here to say, you know, we should silence non-progressive voices, but certainly voices on the right and the left that are inciting to violence or, or doing, you know, spreading false information that could lead to violence or could lead to harm, that that sort of information should be moderated. Well, Ray, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, this is a great book. I learned a lot from it and I really enjoyed talking to you about it. Oh, thank you so much. I, I enjoyed the conversation as well. I really appreciate your interest in my work and, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, Leo, 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 Leo,